Isaiah chapter 26. On August 13th, 2020, two days ago, the CDC released a study that reveals that one in four young adults have contemplated suicide. The report explains that suicide is up 35% and suicide attempts are well above any recorded average in the history of our country. According to the New York Times in a recent article, um, clinically declared uh, depression has skyrocketed in the past six months. Unease, unrest, turmoil, anxiety, agitation, irritation, distress, frustration, these are all words that I would use to describe the average underlying and simmering emotions of most of the people that I have conversed with over the past several months, including people in this church, perhaps most particularly and notably myself. The world is used to declaring that one of the best remedies for these kinds of mental states is to isolate yourself, separate, meditate, get away from the world and just have some introspection. However, what people are finding at this time is that being alone with their own thoughts is actually far from comforting. In fact, Coventry University has just released a study this past week explaining that mindfulness and meditation have a tendency to, quote, increase anxiety and heighten depression in many people. People have no peace. We need peace. This sermon is for people with troubled hearts. Thankfully, the Lord teaches us about the nature of true peace, and He tells us where to find it. Please follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 26 in its entirety. However, I would ask that you take note as we pass by verses 3 and 4, because those will be our primary focus for this morning. <clears throat> it says, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples at the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous in the path of your judgments. O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the, let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all, your, all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. 
To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress, they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so we, because of you, O Lord, we were pregnant. We writhed, but we gave birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it, and no more shall cover its, its slain. Let's pray. Father God, we ask this morning that you would, through your word and by the accompaniment of your Holy Spirit, give us peace. That you would help us to know true peace. That we would experience deep in our soul what it means to be at rest. Lord, I ask for those who are discouraged, that you would lift their heads. And for those who are troubled in their heart, that you would calm their spirit. Lord, this is something we know we can have in you. So, Father, we pray that today you would give us this great grace. Show us how. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Back in March, when the COVID predictions were at their most extreme and the lockdowns were just beginning, I wanted to use this text for one of our sermons. I wanted to jump immediately here to Isaiah chapter 26. It had been on my mind because verses 3 and 4 are sung word for word in Seed's family worship song that we often sing with our family. Now, if you have children, or even if you don't, I highly recommend looking up and investing in Seed's family worship music. It is quite literally just the words of Scripture put to music. We sing it at family devotions, and this is one of those songs that has been in my mind and on my heart during this time. But I delayed on preaching about this text until we arrived here in our journey through Isaiah. So today we finish our time in this oasis of grace in the midst of all of these uh, oracles of judgment. But for those who have faithfully read all of these oracles of, of Isaiah, you know the great weight that you feel as you read through them. It is just wave after wave of judgment, judgment, judgment. But for a moment... Imagine not just being a reader in our day, sitting in an air-conditioned building, reading the text of these oracles of judgment. Imagine yourself being Isaiah. Consider this, this prophet. He was speaking on many occasions to his own neighbors. He was speaking and declaring judgment to his own family members. He was looking at his own people, staring into their eyes, the ones that he grew up with, the ones that he went to school with, the ones that shared his language and his culture and traditions, he was looking to them and saying, you are about to experience judgment. You are about to be destroyed with occasions that are too brutal for me to even describe. Think of how you feel when you share the gospel message with someone you love and they reject it. 
and they turn it down. They think nothing of it. Isaiah was not smiling as he announced their downfall, just as you are not smiling when you look at a loved one and say, I truly believe you are on your way to hell. In fact, I think that Isaiah was well aware that the destruction that was coming would affect not only his nation, but only also his children and his grandchildren. They would be caught in the crossfire. Now, Isaiah had every reason as he is saying these words, outwardly speaking, for despair. If you think the economy in America is bad right now, just imagine what was going to happen to these people. If you think the pandemic is bad here and now, you have no clue what immense suffering the people of, Isaiah were, of Isaiah's day were about to experience. If you think the lockdowns have been difficult because you have lost some modicum of your own freedom, it doesn't compare with becoming a slave and being dragged off to a foreign nation. This is terrible news that Isaiah is giving to his people. Yet in the midst of all of this, Isaiah pens this hymn of grace in chapter 26, which shows us how he had perfect peace. And you and I, we need this peace. We are easily shaken. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it is that we are too easily shaken. We need perfect peace. So our outline this morning is incredibly simple, very basic, absolutely fundamental. We just ask two questions. First, what is peace? And secondly, how can we get it? Let's begin by considering the nature of peace. What is it? Right off the bat, it's necessary to make clear that there is more than one kind of peace that the Bible speaks about. Often, when we communicate about peace, we are talking about reconciling two warring factions. We have two nations, or two individuals, that are opposed to one another. Peace means bringing them together. And generally speaking, humans are not very good at making peace. Usually, peace treaties that exist are nothing more than uneasy and temporary ceasefires. Okay, we'll stop, we'll stop, we'll stop. But the animosity, the rivalry, that remains. It's like a bubbling at a low boil right below the surface. It doesn't take too much to spur it back up. Biblically speaking, we are all desperately in need of having this kind of peace. We are needing peace with God. We are referred to as His enemies. We are rebels. We have run from Him. But God does not just call a ceasefire with us. He does not just wait for us to wave a white flag and then begrudgingly back away and so, oh, okay, okay, enough is enough. He's not just waiting for us to mess up again so that He can claim war once again and demolish us. Rather, we see that God has done everything, not just to declare peace, but to make peace with us. We are no longer referred to as enemies, but made into his friends. Consider Romans 5.10, which says, For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. What else is there for me to do, he says. We are now friends. And if we have experienced the salvation, then we do have peace with God, as he declares in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is an important kind of peace. This is a necessary kind of peace. But this is absolutely not the kind of peace that we're seeing in our text today. However, I have belabored this point so far because I cannot 
speak to you regarding the peace that we are to have according to Isaiah 26 unless you first experience the peace of God in reconciling with Him. So if you are an unbeliever in this congregation this morning, nothing else I say today is of any value. Nothing I say for you to do is possible for you to do unless first you are reconciled to God, unless you move out of the camp of being His enemy and into the realm of being His friend. There will never be peace in your mind or in your heart unless there is first reconciliation between you and God. James Smith, who was an author in the early 1800s, wrote a devotional on Isaiah chapter 26, and he called the devotion, The Seed, the Source, and the Essence of Unhappiness. In it, he says, There is no peace for the wicked, nor is there any happiness for the sinner in his sins. The carnal mind may find something like pleasure in carnal things, but real, solid, lasting joy cannot be found, never has been found by the sinner until converting to God. Carnal pleasure is empty, fleeting, and unsatisfactory in its very nature. If you are an unbeliever here today, you're looking in all the wrong places for peace. You are looking in all the wrong places to experience that inner relaxation, that comfort. But I want to tell you the good news. The good news is that God has seen your deepest need. Your deepest need is not the way that you feel. Your deepest need is your relationship to Him. Your, re your real need is the fact that you, because of your sins, deserve judgment. And He has healed your real need by sending His Son to die in the place of sinners like you and me. He sent Christ to be our substitute. And if you believe in Him, if you trust in Him, believe that His death was of value to forgive your sins, then you will move, like I mentioned, from that place of His enemy to becoming His friend and even called His child. I love my friends, but I love my children much more. And He says of you, if you are in Him, you are my child. But not only does He fix your deepest need, it results in fixing all of your other needs as well. And one of the great needs that you feel is being at no peace. And He says even in that, once you are at peace with God, you can become at peace within yourself. I am certain that you are familiar with the Hebrew word for peace. It is the word shalom. This was one of the most commonly used words in Hebrew. It's all over our Old Testament. It was their typical greeting to one another. As you met with one another, you would announce shalom, shalom. And by saying this, you were declaring a blessing over the other individual as you were seeking them to encounter and experience true peace. The New American Standard Old Testament lexicon gives a list of the range of meanings of this word shalom. I would like for you to hear them. It says that shalom carries with it the main idea of safety, soundness, contentment, and tranquility. It speaks to the idea of the welfare and completeness of a person. It was often used to denote friendship or covenant relationship with someone. Look now at verse 3. Consider the first line in Isaiah 26. He says, You keep him in perfect peace. You, God the Father, keep this individual in perfect peace. Now the term perfect peace that is in your Bible is actually a very interesting linguistic construct in Hebrew. It literally says, 
you keep him in shalom, shalom. The word for peace is repeated to indicate intensity. It is explaining that this is extreme kind of peace. Now, you could translate this as absolute peace or all-encompassing peace or deep and abiding peace. Here they choose to use the phrase perfect peace. This is a reference to the deep kind of peace that somebody experiences in their soul so that even in the face of the most extreme trials and tribulations, they experience internal peace and fortitude rather than turmoil. Now, last week we heard from Isaiah about the way that the Lord fills his people with hope. We are given a steady confidence that all will be well because it is our God who holds the plans and sovereignly rules over the universe. And he constantly and continually is causing and controlling and commanding all things to work together for those who are called according to his purpose. It is in him that we have hope. We look forward and we see, yes, he will hold me fast. And our settled hope looks to the past and it causes us to trust in what God will do in the future. He has died for me. He will care for me. Hope is necessary for peace to exist. That is why in these previous chapters, in chapter 25, he begins with this concept of looking and trusting to God for what he has done and what he will do. Hope is looking into the future with expectation. But peace is living in the heat of the battle right now, in hard circumstances, and being content. Hope is anticipatory. Peace is current. Peace means that even if nothing ever changes to make your situation more appealing, you will still be in a state of contentment. Consider the New Testament parallel passage to this verse that we find in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6-7. through seven. Paul is writing here to a persecuted church, one that has experienced many, many trials, and he says to them, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what will happen? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this perfect peace surpasses understanding because it cannot be explained by pointing to your state of affairs. It is not something that people will look at and say, oh, that makes sense. I get it. I see why that person is at peace while I experience turmoil. No, it is not something that is explainable. Paul is explaining that through our prayers, we pour out our hearts to God, but it does not tie our peace to God, our peace from God, to an answer. He doesn't say, if you just pour out your heart to Him, then He will give you what you want, and then you will feel peace. He says, no, by setting your heart on Him through prayer, it is then that you experience peace. The very act of carrying our burdens to His feet and dropping them there fills us with divine peace. Now, interestingly, the word here in Philippians 4 that is used, that he will guard our hearts and our minds, the peace of God will guard, is the exact same meaning as the word that we see in Isaiah 26. That he will keep us in perfect peace. To guard and to keep have the identical meaning here. Isaiah, Isaiah tells us that God keeps us in perfect peace and that he guards our hearts and minds. Later in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul concludes much of his argument by saying, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, the only reason that the peace of God is with you is because God, the God of peace himself 
is with you. Now, I hope you've noticed that so far, Isaiah has not told you to do anything. He has not given you instruction yet. He does not begin with a list of accomplishments or tasks that you must achieve in order to receive the peace of God. He just starts with God Himself. Because peace is not the goal. Having God is the goal. Peace is the benefit that God graciously gives to those that actively love Him. Verse 4 speaks of God by using three separate titles for Him. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Three titles. Queen Elizabeth II is currently the longest ruling monarch in the world. She is, of course, the Queen of England. That's how we call her, because we're Americans. But depending on where you live, there might be many other ways that you refer to her. In fact, when she is introduced in formal gatherings, someone announces her entry, and they read out a few of her titles and honors. But they rarely read out all of her titles, because the entire list would take nearly eight minutes to read. They simply mention the ones that are most pertinent to the situation. But God's titles... God's honors outnumber and outweigh any of those by earthly monarchs. So if we were to list every one of the nations that he controls and every one of the wars that he has won and every one of the people that declare fealty to him and all of the things that he has accomplished, that, that will take eternity. That's what we will be doing in part in heaven. But Isaiah does something interesting. He grasps hold of some interesting titles, some pertinent titles, and he reminds us of who God is and how it is that this God is able to give us perfect peace. He begins with the name of God, Jehovah. Trust in Jehovah forever. Now this is the covenant name of God. Strong's Concordance summarizes this by saying that it is, quote, God's proper name. In the name Jehovah, it speaks to God's eternality. It speaks to the fact that He is there forever, and that He is infinitely powerful. It's a reminder that God is for us. And if He is for us, even all of the combined armies in the world could not stand against us. But then there is a really interesting twist in the next line. And in your Bibles it says, For the Lord God. But in Hebrew it reads, For Jah, Jehovah. Jah is just a shortened way to use the name Jehovah. It's like repeating earlier, Shalom, Shalom. Here he says, the Lord, the Lord, God, God. He is giving emphasis to this God, saying, this is the powerful, most incredible, amazing God that you are underestimating. He is the one that will give you peace. Isaiah goes on to refer to God as the eternal or everlasting rock. Now this is speaking of his immutability, the fact that he does not change. People may be fickle. People are fickle. Circumstances are unpredictable. But God is not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His emotions do not shift like ours. He will not turn on you in a moment. God is our rock. This also speaks to His faithfulness. His love for you is unwavering. It is unstoppable. Isaiah is calling us on us to trust in God because He is trustworthy. Remember the wise man? He built his house on the rock. Why? Because that bedrock is unmovable. It is unwavering. It is the best place for you to build your life. And here he is saying, God is the rock that is trustworthy. He is never going to leave you, forsake you. He is with you to the end of the age. There is no rock like our God. Now you might recognize this as the origin of the song, Rock of Ages. Cleft for me. 
Let me hide myself in thee. God is the God of peace, and he alone can give you peace, because everything else is like shifting sand, but he is stable. This brings us to our second question, how do we get this peace? If that's what peace is, I want it. How can it be mine? First, let me say that it is very possible for a believer to live in a state of turmoil. This is probably obvious to you because likely you have experienced it. I know that I certainly have. It is important for you to understand that peace is guaranteed for you, but it is not automatic for you. There are things that must take place in order for you to experience it. That is what this text is teaching us. Allow me to first quote once again James Smith, who wrote in, in that devotion I mentioned earlier. He says, In proportion, as sin is subdued, as sanctification is deepened, as the Savior is prized, as our talents are laid out for the Lord's glory, are we happy? But if sin is allowed to conquer, if personal sanctification is neglected, if the intimations of the Holy Spirit are slighted, then the believer is not and cannot be happy, end quote. Now, of course, here, when he speaks of happiness, he's speaking of being unsettled. It is the antonym of peace. If I could summarize that quote and put it into modern language, I would simply say there is nobody in the world that experiences more peace than a believer whose eyes are fixed on Jesus. And there is nobody in the world who experiences more personal turmoil than a believer whose eyes are fixed on the world and themselves. Look again at Isaiah 6, 26, verse 3. He says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In order for you to experience the peace of the Lord, you are required to do something. You must continually set your mind on him. Having your mind stayed on Jehovah is at the very core of the peace that passes understanding. If you ever want to experience shalom, shalom, then you must rivet your eyes to Christ. As Pastor Steve Schultz often reminds us, the Christian life takes place in large part on the battlefield of your mind. We have been given the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. So we are called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And we are to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. For the mind is set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. In short, you are called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. The Christian life is a contemplative life. It is a life filled with fixing your attention on Jesus. And although this is never a difficult thing to do, we often fail to do it. 2020 is getting a bad name, is it not? Every time something new happens, some new terrible event, I hear people and see them posting things like, 2020, at it again, right? Chalk it up to this year. They're personifying 2020. Let me tell you a secret. 2020 is not a person. 2020 has no ambition or will. 
2020 is not attacking you. 2020 doesn't know that you are attacking it. You are simply blaming 2020 because it's something that cannot defend itself. 2020 didn't send COVID. God did that. It's part of the curse for sin. 2020 didn't start the racial tensions that exist in our country. No, our sin did that. 2020 didn't cause your family members to die. God has numbered each one of our days. When you get furloughed from your job or that nasal swab comes back positive for COVID or when your grandmother is laying on a deathbed and you can't visit her or when you get frustrated about sitting through a church service with your young kids who won't stop crying or when you're so sick of being trapped inside or wearing a mask everywhere you go and you feel like you're in prison, it is in those very moments when you desperately need to have your mind stayed on Jehovah. You need to recognize that all of these things that are being stripped away from you are temporal things. At best, they will last until you die, and then whose will these things be? I'm not saying they're insignificant or unimportant. I'm just saying that compared to what we know in Christ, they're comparatively small. The most famous Philistine in history is, of course, Goliath. He was the champion of Gath, and as you remember, he was killed by a boy named David. And I am sure that David became one of the most notorious enemies of the Philistine people. They knew his name. They knew what he had done to them. But at one point, David, when he was being pursued by Saul, thought that the safest place for him to go would to be to Gath, the home city of Goliath, to the place where the Philistines live. So David crossed the border into that land, believing that it would be safer because he knew that is the one place that Saul would never go. He is terrified of the Philistines. So while there, David was seized by the Philistines, and it was in that time and place that David wrote the psalm I read to you at the beginning of the service, Psalm 56. When his enemies surrounded him and his circumstances seemed incredibly dire, in that moment, David trusted in God. So he sang these words. He said, when I am afraid. David, this great king, got afraid. You get afraid. It's not troublesome to admit that. I feel fear on occasion. But when I am afraid, what do we do? I put my trust in you, he says, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Later, he concludes, what can man do to me? What is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? You die and go to heaven? What's the worst possible thing that could happen to you? Nothing has been left outside of God's care. Isaiah is teaching us here that we can have genuine internal peace like David did when he was captured at Gath. When I wake up in the morning, I, I don't have the mindset that David had here. And if you're anything like me, and I think you are, then you probably check your email and you see that the world is falling apart and you see the way that life has become slightly more difficult and somewhat different and you feel discouraged and you see the sin that permeates our society and you see the sin that permeates your own heart and you just feel fatigued by it all. Isaiah is screaming at us. He is screaming at you today. Look up. Look up, church, and set your eyes on Christ. Let your mind be stayed on Jehovah. This does not mean that you are going to lock yourself in your bedroom and open your Bible and read it all day long and do nothing else. 
It does not mean that you will quit your job and join a monastery and lock yourself into an ivory tower where you will do nothing but read your Bible and pray all day long. That is not what he means by having your mind stayed on Jehovah. He is being realistic here, knowing that you have stuff that you must do in order to feed yourself and care for your family. He knows that. He is not saying that you are to ignore all of your responsibilities. He is saying in the midst of them and in the face of them, it is at that very moment that having your mind set on Jehovah gives you peace. What Isaiah is talking about is having your mind locked on the Lord so that everything that you see and everything that you hear is filtered through the reality that God is God and he is there for me. If you blame 2020 for something bad happening to, do, to you, what's going to happen? You're just going to get angry. You're going to get angry at some non-existent entity that's just a couple of numbers on a calendar. But if you realize that this disease is from the hand of the Lord, then you will become prayerful in seeking a cure and asking God, pleading with Him to remove it and its effects from our nation and our world. And you'll be confident that even when God says no, that He is working out His perfect will and building His church. If you stand firm in your confidence that Christ is in control, then you will not be discouraged, you will not be dismayed or despondent when the world seems out of control. If you meditate on verses like, like Psalm 62.6, He Ill only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken, it is then that you will be unshakable. Kent Hughes once spoke about our peace like a string. Imagine right now if I were to find one and pull it out of my shirt and hold it here in front of you, it would not take much effort for me to pop it into two pieces. It would not take much for that string to break in two. It cannot withstand even the slightest pressure. But then imagine a giant iron chain, like the kind you see holding a ship to port. This chain that stretches out, no matter how hard the tempest blows or a hurricane comes in, it cannot pull away that, that ship. It cannot break it. It cannot do anything to cause the chain to lose its integrity. You are like the thread. Your confidence is easily broken. Your joy quickly snaps. Discouragement pulls at one end and disaster at the other, seeking at all times to destroy your peace. And often, it succeeds. But Christ is the great chain. Nothing will cause him to snap. He is constant. He is unwavering. But what happens if you take that thread and you weave it through each and every link in that chain? Then the thread becomes just as safe as the chain itself. The thread will not break unless the chain also breaks. If your piece is tied to your retirement account or your bank account or the report from the doctor, or anything else that this world can offer you, then you are too easily shaken. Isaiah was troubled because he knew what was coming. He knew what's on the horizon. He knew that people were going to suffer and die. But consider another scene in the Bible with troubled people. John chapter 14. We see the disciples at the upper room in the Last Supper. Jesus was speaking to these disciples, and he told them in John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Later in the chapter, Jesus resolves the conversation by saying, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. 
If your heart is troubled, know that the God of peace, Jesus himself, promises you that he will give you his peace. Not just any peace, but the same kind of peace that he himself experienced. If your heart is troubled, know that he is for you and with you and holding you fast. Allow me to close with an extended quote here from Matthew Henry, who says things far better than I do. He paraphrases this section of Isaiah chapter 26 by saying, You will keep him in peace, peace, in perfect peace, inward peace, outward peace, peace with God, peace of conscience, peace at all times, under all events. This peace shall, be put, uh, uh, shall he be put into and kept in the possession of, whose mind is stayed on God, because it trusts in Him. It is the character of every good man that he trusts in God, puts himself under His guidance and government, and depends on Him that it shall be greatly to his advantage to do so. Those that trust in God must have their minds stayed upon Him, must trust Him at all times, under all events, must firmly and faithfully adhere to Him with an entire satisfaction in Him. And such as do so, God will keep in perpetual peace, and that peace shall keep them. Let's pray. Father God, we are often in turmoil. And Lord, we need Your peace. Quite simply, Lord, we need more of You. Not that You can give us more of Yourself, for You have given us all things, but we need to recognize you in every element of our day, in every event that occurs. Lord, we need to see that it is you who is working. Father, I pray that you would cause us to have a, a worldview, a mindset, a perspective that is correct. Help us to lift our vantage point from the surface of this world to having a mind of Christ as we stand in the heavenlies looking down and seeing the world through your perspective seeing what you are doing. Lord, when we, when we are discouraged and distraught, help us to see that we have every good gift in, in the heavenly places that have been provided for us without merit, but only by your grace. So, Father, I pray for each person here, each person who is struggling, each person who is currently suffering with depression or discouragement. Lord, lift their eyes to your Son. Help them to en encounter true peace. May it be with them at all times. Help us, Father, to have that perfect peace, that shalom, shalom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.